HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by El Cortez. Stop in for tacos and tiki drinks at 17 Ingraham Street in Bushwick, or visit them online at elcortezbushwick.com. Coming this May from Heritage Radio Network, the surprising stories of how artists, activists, and entrepreneurs collide in one special Brooklyn community that's changing faster by the day. I'm 28 years old. I live in Bushwick, Brooklyn. When I moved to Bushwick, when I moved to Brooklyn, I chose Bushwick randomly. We've recently opened up in Bushwick. All over Bushwick. Bushwick. Brooklyn, Bushwick. This is Bushwick Podcast, a series that takes you behind the scenes of how people in kitchens, shops, and countless other community spaces create New York City's most dynamic neighborhood. Each week, we step into the journeys that define Bushwick and break down the forces competing to shape its future. These are local stories like you've never heard before. Join us this May, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. It is Heritage Radio Network's 10th anniversary this year, and uh, in celebration of that, I encourage all of you, my listeners, to become members and support us here at HRN. Uh, We are a member-supported radio network, uh, really a podcast network, but we call ourselves Radio Network because radio has a nice ring to it. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org, and please leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Today's theme, Think About Cooking. Do you think about cooking? I think about cooking a lot. The other day I was visiting family and as we cleared the breakfast dishes, I asked to nobody in particular, what should we make for dinner? Somebody said, we just finished breakfast and you want to start making dinner? I said, yes, I eat every day and I think about what we're going to eat pretty much all the time. It struck me that perhaps not everyone thinks this way. Certainly many of us have the luxury to not worry about where our food comes from or what we're going to eat. I think there's a lot of value, though, in thinking about our food. The further out you think about it, often the more delicious a thing you can make. You can ferment something that you know you'll get to eat in a few days or a few weeks. You can cure a ham or a salami that might not be ready for months or even a year. You can plant seeds that might take months to grow. I think you see where I'm going with this. The more we think about our food, the better, as far as I'm concerned. 
Deciding when you're driving by a restaurant that you want to eat isn't a bad thing, but it means that things like nutrition and sourcing might not necessarily be on your mind. Again, I'll say that this is a privileged position, and I try to never forget that, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't engage in these thoughts and processes if we can. My family cooks most of our meals at home, and while this sometimes means staring into the cupboard and feeling like I'm on chopped with a can of hearts of palm, some cornmeal, tinned fish, and some wilted greens, well, so be it. What it also means is that we belong to a CSA, and starting in a few weeks, we'll get a variety of vegetables every week to use, and that takes some thought. A bonus is that they're grown by people whose lives have been intertwined with ours for more than a decade as they grow food that we eat, and we've supported them and their farm, and our families have both grown. I love that when I pull a side of salmon out of the freezer from Iliamna Fish Company, I think of Christopher and his wife Emily and their sons, who will decamp from Brooklyn in a month or so for the shores of Bristol Bay, Alaska, to catch salmon for this year's share. Christopher Nicholson has been on this show and many others here on Heritage Radio Network. Just this morning, I pulled out some pork from the freezer from Heritage Foods. I stopped to think about Patrick Martins, the founder of this network, who also runs Heritage Foods USA, and the producers that he works with. So think about your food, where it's from, and how you're going to prepare it. My guest today spent a lot of time thinking and writing about these topics. Michael Ruhlman's been writing about food for the last two decades, and among his many award-winning titles are some of my favorites. He spent years translating the ideas, techniques, and recipes of professional chefs to the home kitchen. If there's something you want to know how to make, it's probably in one of his books. So you should just go out and get them all. You won't be sorry. Thanks, Michael, for coming to the studio here in uh, Bushwick or East Williamsburg, depending on how you want to call the neighborhood on this rainy Monday. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that very kind introduction. Um, so you're best known around here at Heritage Radio Network and to many people for your cookbooks and your books about chefs and about how people become chefs at the, at the CIA, um, and then Grocery, which came out in 2017 about the grocery industry. But you've written a whole host of other books as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, kind of those, those other writings? The other writings I've done... I, you know, I never wanted. I never set out to write about food. I mm. started as a journalist, and my first book was about uh, boys' boys' education. Yeah. Uh, all, all, and I went to an all boy high school, and I went back to that high school to write about the efficacy or the harm of all male education at a time when anything all male was considered toxic. Sure. Uh, and then it sort of died down a little bit after the 90s, and now it's all back again. I mean, my, my daughter was the first female Cub Scout in Cub Scout really? Pack 996 here oh, in wow. Brooklyn. God bless uh, her. So, I mean, that, that topic has come up very recently for, for us. Um, then I went to the CIA, to the Culinary Institute of America, to, to see, what the con- see what the most prominent cooking school needed to, said you needed to know in order to be a chef. Right. And I realized very quickly you couldn't be write about this unless you actually became one because so many of the changes were interior Mm. you had to change how you thought Uh, and so I became a cook in order to write that book Um, and once I was a cook and this was 1996 97 96 97 the whole country was starting to really become interested in chefs the food network has had taken off Um, the French laundry had opened um, the whole food world was was focused on chefs. So I, as a journalist, had something that few other journalists had, which was a culinary education. Right. And so I took that and f- through various sources of both determination and luck, uh, parlayed that into a lot of cookbooks, but, but almost by accident. But in the meantime, I wrote about wooden boat building, a book yeah. called Wooden Boats. The book I'm most proud of writing was about uh, pediatric heart surgery. What I found was that I like working with people who work with their hands with natural products. Uh, boat builders worked with wood. Surgeons yeah. worked with flesh. Yeah. Uh, I was fascinated by the t- pressure in the kitchen. 
kitchen is a very stressful environment and it changes who you are because of that stress. Stress. I wanted to find out how, uh, how, what happened to surgeons whose skill, you know, as also Tom Stroller said to me yeah. once, I, I said, are you nervous before service? He says, no, it's not like I'm going to kill anybody. Right. Well, these guys, if they have a bad day, it's because somebody dies. Yeah. I want to see how that changed you. So that's how I've written about, I, I write about people and I write about what I'm curious about. And of course, I'm curious about food. And, and as I've written it over the years, you know, I used to sort of push back the, 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 the moniker food writer because I thought that was less important. But my God, our food is making us sick. If we don't have food, we die. It's, yeah. it's the most important thing there is besides it's more important than love. It's more important than shelter. You know, thousands, millions get by without um, shelter, without love. They can't get by without food. You can't get by without story either. And so I combine those two in my work. Um, I mean, the and, and the work that you've done in food, I think, is valuable not only because of that, but because you have identified, I mean, in the past, you opened up a book, you know, looking, I mean, the past, looking at like the 20th century and looking at how cookbooks existed, right? You start in the early 20th century, they were either for people who were homemakers or they were produced by product companies, that wanted to sell you their product, right? Mm -hmm. Wanted to sell you their baking right. powder or whatever it was. Um, but the way that you've approached it in many of your books has way more to do with technique and how people are thinking about using the ingredients that they have. I mean, I'm thinking about a book like Ratio, thinking about a book like 20. Romans 20, yeah. It's all about technique. That's what I learned at, at cooking school. I, I started writing about chefs back in Cleveland, where my hometown, for a local magazine because I loved cooking. And I read recipes and I used recipes, but I knew that chefs didn't. And mm -hmm. therefore, they knew something that I didn't. I want to know what that was. It's technique. It's the ratio. Um, if you know one technique, uh, you know 100 recipes, 1,000 recipes. So that's why I wrote Romans 20. Um, I was sitting with uh, Bill LeBlond, a former editor of Chronicle Books, and we were at a food writer's convention, not uh, just food writer's thing at the Green Buyer. And we were having a mint julep after the day's sessions, and... Bill said, you know, I'm not really, I, I've sort of plateaued as a cook. I, I, you know, I'm just not getting any better. And I said, Bill, there's only like 20 things you need to know in order to cook anything. <laughs> and he looked at me with his eyes got wide and serious, like I'd said something really evil. And he pointed his finger at me and said, that's a book. <laughs> and that's how Romans 20 started. He Amazing. wrote it down right there, the 20 things you need yeah. to know in order to cook anything. And handed me the paper. So, I mean, I, one of my, that, that's a great lead into one of the questions I was going to ask, which is how do you come up with the ideas for your books? I mean, from something like Wooden Boat Building to you have a new book uh, coming out later this year called From Scratch. Right. Um, from Scratch started because I wanted to write a cookbook. I wanted to write one more cookbook. And I didn't quite know where I was going. I was, I, I was writing, I started out to write about fire and water, the high heat cooking and low heat cooking. Um, but the more I thought about it, um, well, here's what happened. In 2009, I wrote a post about how to cure pork belly for a pancetta. And a chef or a home cook or somebody wrote in and says, well, um, I grow my own lettuce and tomatoes. I make my own bread. I might as well make this pancetta and make my own BLT. And then someone else chimed in in comments saying, I can't get a BLT from scratch out of my head. And so I said, let's make this a challenge, the BLT challenge. Yeah. You have to make your own bread, grow your own lettuce, grow your own tomatoes, cure your own bacon, and make your own mayonnaise. And this one sandwich, I realized, could teach you so much about mm. cooking. 
how to bake bread, how to make an emulsified sauce, how to cure any meat, how to make a corned beef. Yeah. And I looked at 10 meals. Like, what, what are the 10 meals that can teach us more and more about cooking? And that's how From Scratch started. It's 10 meals, like roast chicken, steak frites, lasagna, uh, cassoulet, that teach us about cooking. Because I want to teach people about cooking because we're taught that cooking is hard. Cooking is not hard. Thomas Keller said to me just the other day, if, it's, you know, if what you're doing is hard, you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so true, but we're taught by food manufacturers, by cooking, uh, cookware producers, that cooking is hard and they're going to make it so easy for you. Well, and, and I think there's a certain thing that sometimes happens in restaurants. I mean, not to not to belittle the work of some of the great chefs. I mean, I love, you know, I've, I've met Daniel Home and I've eaten his food. The 11 Madison Park Cookbook is not a functional book for a home cook That's to correct. use. I don't know that and it's I a functional book for chefs to use. Certainly, that may, be, that may um, also be true. Nothing against Daniel. He's no. a, amazing. That's an amazing restaurant. And, and it's I'm, a great book, yeah, too. Absolutely. But it's not necessarily a useful book for someone at home who wants to cook for exactly. themselves. No, not at all. And we're, I'm struggling. I mean, you know, I'm going back to the French Laundry. That's why I was talking with Thomas. Yeah. We're doing another cookbook uh, with French Laundry and Per Se and his chefs there. And I've been struggling with the publisher and the chefs. I said, we've got to make this food accessible. It's just food has become so complex at these four-star restaurants that you can't get anywhere near it. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to make these things accessible again. It's, it's harder and harder because our cooking has become so complex. Uh, right. So anyway, I, I appreciate that. I'm trying to find both information that's useful to chefs, but also information that home cooks can take advantage of as well. Right. Is there a specific technique uh, in your years and years of writing about technique that translates from something that a chef might learn in culinary school or might learn working in a restaurant kitchen um, that is like the number one technique that you would say people should be using at home? And then the other side of that, are there any techniques at use in restaurant kitchens that you feel like don't translate at all? Uh, well, of, of course, the first technique is, is think. Yeah. <laughs> you were talking yeah. about it earlier, yeah. thinking about food. First of all, I think about what I'm having three days from now. I know what I'm having. It helps you plan. It's not just because I'm obsessed with it, because right. I am, and yeah. I write about it. Um, but it helps you plan. You've you yeah. got to plan. And when you plan, it's cooking is so much easier. <clears throat> um, I lost my train of thought. Where well, we so thinking, oh, thinking, thinking would be the, okay, the number the, one. The number one thing, thing is yeah. seasoning. Yeah. Paying attention to salt. Sure. Always use the same salt, whether it's diamond crystal kosher salt or Morton's kosher salt. Just use the same one. Morton's is twice as strong because it's heavier it's denser so just always use the same kind and pay attention to it salt your food early if you're cooking onions begin salting the onions there even if the stew is hours away yeah uh seasoning um how to use an egg is extraordinary the i mean you wrote a whole book I wrote about a whole, it. it's so extraordinary <laughs> i wrote a whole book about all the things you can do in egg so just about everything uh chefs do in the kitchen is has some translatable um used to the home cook. What's changed in the professional kitchen is the equipment. They have something called a combi oven now. Right. The rationale is what I'm, I'm used to. It, it cooks at precise temperatures. We're even past sous vide now. Sure. The combi cooks at precise temperatures with steam, with dry heat. Uh, it does just about everything. It, they're too expensive. Also, right. most people don't have a proper vacuum sealer. You have a food saver, that kind of thing, but you can't seal liquids. Those two items are really the two main things that don't apply to home kitchens. Um, but other than that, everything does. Right. Yeah. I mean, we can we can get by we can get by pretty well, I think, um, without those. We've been doing it for <laughs> centuries. Yeah, I think we can. So you grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. 
Um, and my, I visited Cleveland a couple of times. And one of the things I was really struck by is the West Side Market. Oh, Cleveland. yeah. It is a marvel. Ever, you know, I've been going there since I was a kid. It's an absolute marvel. It was built in 1910, I believe, as a purpose, purpose-built market for the community. It's a beautiful old structure. It's filled with case after case of salami and fresh. It's where, if I needed a pig's head, that's where I go. If I need yeah. call fat, I could get it there. If I need rabbit, that's where I go. Yeah. Uh, it's an extraordinary, bustling place. Um, a friend walked in and said, my gosh, it's almost like Vietnam here. So the market's <laughs> in Vietnam. Interesting. Uh, it's a lot like the market in Detroit. Yep. Detroit is a great market. Yep. There are other great markets throughout the, the Detroit country. one's called Eastside Market. Eastside Market, right. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and then Cleveland, it's Westside. That's interesting. Yeah. I thought of that. <laughs> anyway, so I was lucky to have that. Yeah, I mean, I find it too bad in New York that we kind of, some of those things have been lost. I mean, I feel like Arthur Avenue in the Bronx is sort of a similar area right. to that. Um, Essex Street is now just is now moved, right? Essex right. is about to move to, across to the south side of Delancey Street there right. and into a giant brand new building. I'm, and I just curious to see that. how yeah. that sort of translates. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Hard to, hard to know. Uh, but it's, it's harder here in New York City because somebody is selling and you can get you can get anything you want from sure. somebody somewhere. Yeah. So it's hard to have it all collected in one spot right. in New York City. Yeah, of course. So you now, you grew up in Cleveland, lived there for a long time. Now you split your time between I do. Manhattan I, and Providence, Rhode Island. Yes, I, I, uh, I've, I've remarried a wonderful woman named Ann Hood. She's a writer. Her book uh, just came out called Kitchen Yarns. And oh. it, 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 this is interesting because she was with her um, agent and editor, and, and she just got a, a best food writing uh, essay put in that the anthology that year and said we should do a book of your food essays and she said I don't write about food and she said well you just got an award you know <laughs> just got this nice accolade and she started thinking about it and she said I didn't know it but I use food to get into so many other topics because uh-huh. food leads us into um, other areas of life food's a great connector yeah. of all people so I married got remarried moved to the West Village uh, she uh, lives in both Providence and she teaches in, at NYU in the new school. So we split our time between Providence and New York City and it's, uh, it's, it's heavenly. Yeah, I mean, if you could get there without having to drive through Connecticut on 95, <laughs> oh, it would be a dream, Connecticut. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. My wife's family is all up there. And so oh, I spent, yeah. we were just, I, was, I drove back from Rhode Island yesterday. I drove <laughs> in Saturday. <laughs> um, where do you shop in Providence? Um, there's a, a place called the East Side Market, which yep. uh, was a great place, and then Stop and Shop bought it, and they have pretty much ruined it. Thank you, Stop and Shop. Yeah. Um, there are no great grocery stores there. I wish there was a Heinen's, like I had in Cleveland, yeah. or a Wegman's, uh, or something like that. And if I need a specialty item, I have to go to a chef friend and say, "Can you, you, you know, get me some it. pork belly, or get right. me some duck legs, or mm-hmm. something like that." So it's hard. Yeah. We're going to take a short break uh, and hear from one of our sponsors here on Heritage Radio Network. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about Heinen's and about your book, Grocery. Today's program was brought to you by El Cortez, a colorful, bi-level restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. El Cortez sports a bar on each floor, a patio for drinking zombies in the moonlight, and the capacity for just under a couple hundred revelers. New York Magazine's Chris Crowley profiled El Cortez, saying its owners aren't trying to mine Mexican restaurants of any era, but just mesh together a bunch of things that they like. The menu focuses on what they call all three Mexicans, hot plate, gringo, and Mexican-Mexican. 
There's no fried chicken queso or chili con carne, but mission-style burritos, loaded all-American tacos, and a chimichanga. There's also a cheeseburger, because who cares? Cocktails lean heavily in the direction of tiki and the kind of low-brow drinks that caused the mixology revolution. Classic drinks your grandparents definitely drank, like the pina colada and rum punch, made with quality ingredients and a whole bunch of trial and error. Visit El Cortez at 17 Ingraham Street in Bushwick, or online at elcortezbushwick.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. If you're just tuning in, my guest today is author Michael Ruhlman, who you may know um, from his vast array of cookbooks and books about food, but he also writes a lot of other things, a lot of journalistic things, including a memoir about fixing up an old house, uh, one of your books. So before the break, we were uh, touching on your book, Grocery, um, which really was in that journalistic style Mm -hmm. and was an investigation of the grocery business in America. Um, one of the things I found really interesting about it, you know, there's been lots of articles and lots of things and, and I coming out of someone who ran a small grocery. Uh, did in, you really? Yeah, yeah. The Brooklyn Kitchen, you know, we had our whole I didn't grocery know you were, thing. You, and, you had a grocery. Yeah, yeah we so had you a know whole, how. I, I mean, I know. It's gone, it gone now. We've closed it. But, it's <laughs> but, too uh, hard. It's too hard. Exactly. And, you know, there's been a lot of things written about the sort of the death of small grocery, but you focused on a, a company, you know, Heinen's, which has, I think, six locations in No, it has about uh, 20 oh, locations. Oh, I'm sorry. So it's a medium-sized Yeah, medium-sized it's, it's not pre- small. It's pretty, it, in, that, in terms of the industry, it's small. Sure. Uh, you know, but, but compared to, to what we had, it's large, right? It's That's large. The, yeah. Um, yeah, you are very small. Yeah. And there are, there are single-family grocers out there, yep. and God bless them for doing that work. But, yeah. but, and Heinen's with 20 and now like four in Chicago. Yeah. You know, they will do more than a half a billion dollars in sales and they're still considered a small family business. Sure. I mean, the profit margin is so tiny. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's wild. I mean, so, so you basically in similar fashion to how you went into the CIA and became, became a chef, became Mm -hmm. a cook, you went and worked. I worked. And uh, you I shadowed got, Heinen's right yeah, for a number I, of years. I did. I did. I was. <laughs> in fact, I would actually. Um, I, I'd gotten divorced, and I'd see people would see me bagging groceries, wearing a Heinen shirt, and they would just say, "Oh boy, he's falling on hard times." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I bagged groceries. I, I stocked shelves and hung out with the the grocery managers, with the produce managers, with the in the the, the butchers and fishmongers. I went to farms where they were getting their food. I was like. I went to grocery stores every day, but I didn't know where any of the food was coming from. Yeah. How could we have? How could I get? How could I get pea pods in Cleveland any day of the year? As much as I wanted, it seemed like. Yeah. Um, any day of the year, and not only just in Cleveland, but in any of the grocery stores in Cleveland, and in any grocery in America. Yeah. Where were all these pea pods coming from? Yeah. And so that's what I really wanted to find out, and it gives you a sense of how vast this country is, and how much how much we rely on the growers of food to get us the food. We take it for granted and we can't or it's going to seriously screw us up. It's already started making us sick. Oh, yeah. I mean, so. it, it is it is a it's a very and, and it becomes a very difficult thing because, I mean, as I said in the opener, like we are privileged to sit here and talk about these topics. Yes. And unfortunately, the people who are really getting sick from a lot of this food are people who don't have that luxury. That's absolutely right. The, the, their studies show that people are more likely to die younger if they don't live near a grocery store. Yeah. If they're forced to, by just sheer uh, uh, physicality and, and, and location, to eat processed food, they're going to develop health 
you know, food-related illnesses, and they're yeah. going to die earlier. Right. That's how important a grocery store is. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think the other thing that's happening, so I I think last night or this morning, you know, I mean, I get a zillion, like, you know, spam emails a day. Um, and I got one, I think, from uh, Postmates and one from DoorDash saying, you know, you haven't ordered food in a while. Don't you want to order some food delivered? And I think, you know, and I've, I immediately deleted it, but I thought to myself, you know, that's something I never do. I mean, I take out is something we do very, very rarely in our family because we just are obsessed with food and we, we cook nearly all the time. And I love going to grocery stores and I love shopping and finding what we're going to finding what we're going to eat. Um, but I think about the fact that for so many people, they don't even know how to cook and they don't even think that their first thought is I'm going to order this or I'm going to get it on seamless or I'm going to, you know, reach for my, you know, food liquid based food replacement therapy. <laughs> Right. Uh, it's because they think cooking's hard. Yeah. They don't plan, and they think cooking hard. But some people are really, really busy. Uh, of course. And they can. They've got kids. And, Absolutely. And some people just don't like to cook, and yeah. that's fine, too. Right. But you have to do it. So you have to find some way to do it within your means, within your family structure. Somebody in your tribe has to gather the food. Somebody has to prepare it. Yeah. Uh, even if it's ordering the pizza. I mean, yeah. it, sure. it just depends on how you want to handle it. Yeah. And I believe... In, and, and know, and as you know, that the cooking of food in a home is a pleasure and makes that home better. It actually relieves stress to smell food uh, uh, cooking. It relieves our stress. And if we're cooking our own food, that means it's going to be better for us. If we're going to be more healthy. It's going to be nutritious food. Uh, so there are, all many, there are many benefits to cooking your own food if people would recognize that more uh that i try to get people to recognize that people yeah. say you know no, nobody says oh, i'd love to shower but i'm, I'm just too busy <laughs> no, no one says that it's all a matter of how we prioritize Absolutely. what we do yeah and and you know and you have a thing now where i think because of the way it has been industrialized and become something that that you know hedge funds can invest in the fitness uh, you know, industry has become enormous when, you know, not that there's anything wrong with fitness. I mean, I work out, um, but what you eat has more impact on your health than how many calories you burn at the gym. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Calories in calories out as far as weight loss goes, works for me, but, um, those calories come in different forms yeah. as you know, and some are good for you and some are bad. And we don't really even understand why necessarily. I mean, it's very important eating a, uh, eating the same amount of sugar that's in a grape is different from eating that grape because there's a fiber matrix yep. that holds all that those carbohydrates. Uh, so I think if we eat whole foods, we don't need to worry about. We won't need to worry. You'll find your natural weight anyway. Yeah. Um, and so some of us are chunky. Yeah. And um, some of us are slim. And uh, the people who are, you know, unhealthily overweight are probably eating poorly yeah um and, and it's and it's a vicious cycle i mean unfortunately it's it is it's hard and i i wish there was an answer for it but um there isn't i think that we need to eat a, what's appropriate for our bodies we need to listen to our bodies and how the food affects us after we've eaten it or an hour after we've eaten do we feel good Yep. I think that's a good indication. If we feel too stuffed, we've eaten too much. If we eat a if I, I love Pringles, I love Pringles potato chips. They're not even potato chips; they're crisps or yeah, something right. like that. <laughs> but if I eat a can of them, uh, I feel awful afterwards. That's right. my body telling me these are not good right. for you. But if I eat a steak and a buttery baked potato, I feel great. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a very interesting way to approach it to think about how the food is going to make you feel after, and that that is part of the thinking about it. 
right? Absolutely. Part of the thinking about how you're going to uh, how you're going to feel, how it's going to affect your body after the fact, um, you know, plays into it. I mean, I, I was working out the other day, and someone said, "Oh, you know, if you're really if you're really stressing your muscles, you need to eat a lot of protein." And I hadn't thought about it in that way before. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, now I was thinking, well, okay, I guess I need to eat some protein to help the muscle fibers rebuild and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but hadn't ever really considered what I was eating based on what I had been doing. But I, I'll bet your body would tell you if you're seriously stressing your muscles and you do need that protein, you're going to be hankering for a steak or a burger yeah. uh, or a big pot of beans or something sure. with a lot of protein in it. Yeah. Because your body's it knows. It's right. keeping track of what made me feel good when I need this. Yeah. One thing we, oh, so two things. Yeah, think, think about food and think about how you feel afterwards. And don't think about healthy food. Don't think of food as healthy. Food isn't healthy. Right. We're healthy. Right. Food is nutritious. If you think about, is this nutritious? It, that's very easy. You know, yeah. steak and potatoes. Yeah, there's lots of nutrients in there. Is there nutrients in, in Pringles? No. Right. <laughs> but, you know, we also, you know, we are human. And so if you want to have some Pringles sometime, you should be allowed to. Absolutely. The, the sort I love... of Jesuit self-flagellation thing that people <laughs> go through where they're like, oh, you know, I, I can have this piece of pizza because I spent an hour on the treadmill. Uh, I know. We, see, we think we, we're so fucked up about food. Um, we, we treat food like medicine uh, here in America. And we, we, we should treat food as a joy and a pleasure and a luxury. And yeah. we should care for it and be careful about it and consume it thoughtfully. So you, uh, you write a lot about your father in grocery. Um, and you, you responded to my, my question of who would you like to have dinner with? You'd like to have dinner with your father who <laughs> passed away. I'm going to start crying right now if you talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, you know, he was clearly a big influence on you and on your, you know, you say that he, his like Saturday pastime was going to the grocery store. <laughs> it's one of his favorite hobbies. <laughs> he, you know, in, in fact, he often said when I retire, I think I'm going to go bag groceries. I just love to see what people are buying. I love to see what's out yeah. there. That's why I wrote grocery. Yeah. I was, think I was missing him. I started writing it the year after he died in 2008 and then eventually came back to it um, uh, to finish the book but I yeah he loved to eat he was he was exactly like you when you were talking about what are we going to eat for dinner (laughs) I mean while we were in the middle of dinner he would be saying what what do you want to have for dinner tomorrow night right and so that's where I got that from uh, and what sort of things, like, how did, how did food uh, work in your family when you were growing up? Was your dad the cook? Did your mom cook? Did, you know, you obviously started cooking at a relatively young age as well. Um, I did because both my parents worked. Uh, and so uh, we always ate dinner really late, 8 o'clock. My friends yeah. couldn't believe it. Yeah, me too. Having growing up, same. Um, my dad loved to grill, so we would grill. Uh, my mom, they shared in the, ki- in the cooking equally. At both like to cook, and we hung out in the kitchen. That's where we had conversations. So it was a place of uh, good smells and warmth and conversation. And it was just me, my dad, and my mom. Uh, I was an only child. Uh, and that's why I learned to cook, because I was hungry after school, and the Pop-Tarts weren't cutting it right. after so long. Because <laughs> they wouldn't be home till 6, and I had three hours. And yeah. so I, the first thing I learned in fourth grade is how to make a potato onion frittata. So I made that, and my friends were mystified. My friends were mystified that I could make my own popcorn. It's, you know, it's silly uh, how little we know about food, but it's, yeah. it's so easy. There's even a recipe for how to make popcorn in the new book from scratch. Oh, cool. Because it's from scratch, and people... Yeah. You know, my son didn't know that there was such a thing as... He once asked me for pot popcorn, and I thought, there's a six-year-old asking for pot popcorn? What is that? <laughs> so as you know... 
in a, in a pot on the stove as opposed to in the microwave. <laughs> right. uh, and so, and some people, some I wrote about this. Some parents said my my kids didn't know you could do that. Right. They thought it all came in a cellophane wrap bag. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, what else do you have in the works? I mean, so so from scratch is now done. I mean, it's packaged, yeah. it's being printed, and, and all that stuff. It is. It's in its final stages before going to the printer out uh, out in October of this year. And uh, Pate Confit Riette right. has just come out with yeah. my friend Brian Polson. How did you and Brian first start working together? Well, because that's now your third book with him, right? It's our third book together. Um, I was on assignment for the New York Times Magazine to write about the certified master chef exam at the Culinary Institute of America, which I had just finished my book about. He was one of the chefs that were taking this test, this crazy 10-day cooking test, to certify you as a master chef. Um, and he was the most interesting, articulate guy, and I just, I just really liked him. And I knew that he taught, uh, from that work, I knew that he taught charcuterie. Uh, at Schoolcraft College in Livonia, Michigan, outside Detroit, and I had, I was, you know, I had become obsessed with duck confit, and I looked into, I kept, I read about it, I made it, you know, the idea of taking this rich duck leg and poaching it in fat, curing, yeah. salting it first, seasoning it, poaching it in fat, letting it ripen in that fat for as long as you could stand to wait, and then crisping it up in the oven, and it, it gave you the most delicious duck anything on the planet and, and, and as far as I was concerned and when I read more about it I realized wow we didn't come up with this ingenious way of cooking duck because it pleased us right we did this to stay alive yeah and, uh, and so it would last so it would right? last so it would preserve so <laughs> yep. we could live through the winter yeah and when I realized that that I thought god I want to look more into this uh this this craft of preserving food of preserving meat especially um and and so I called up Brian and said do you want to write a book and he said, sure. So, we so wrote that's charcuterie. how charcuterie, that's came, how charcuterie to be, yeah. came to be. That was really successful. He wanted to write more about salumi. Uh, so we did a book on salumi, dry curing. It's a very hard subject. It's hard to cure a ham. It's hard to cure a salami. Yeah. But there are some fanatics out there who want to do it. And certainly a lot of chefs have gotten into it. Well, um, and I think you were, I mean, again, like right, right place and time kind of thing. I mean, when we first opened the Brooklyn Kitchen in 2006, it was right when, you know, Jim Leahy's No Need Bread recipe came out. And I was messing around at the time with Tom Milan, who later became a business partner in the Meat Hook with me of, you know, we were making salami right. in my basement, uh, you know, hanging it in an old refrigerator that I had with a fan inside, you know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and so that all that stuff was all happening all at that moment. Yeah. So it, I, th I think I, I've, you know, I've had my finger on the pulse of stuff as you have. And when you're sort of obsessed with food, you do that. And I, I just happen to write about it. Yeah. Um, and now we've just come out with one sort of exploring further how to perfect pâtés and how to, you know, the various ways you can use a confit and how to make riettes just because we love the subject and, and we felt that there was more more finesse that we could describe in this. <clears throat> it's got nice pictures in this book, too. Yeah, they're beautiful. I, I mean, the, and, and I feel like that book really is in a place where, you know, it, it is both useful to chefs in restaurants who want to be serving that kind of thing or maybe are working on a whole animal program or want to, you know, limit their waste and be using more of the things that usually get trimmed off, as well as people who are, you know, uh, weekend warriors, for lack of a way, better way to put it, that that's what their hobby is, right? Sure. A hobbyist who is like, I'm going to perfect this pâté en croûte. Now, as someone who has a nine-year-old and a five-year-old, I'm not going to be making pâté en croûte <laughs> at least for 13 or 14 years. But maybe... 
in, in you know. But you can make it I easy, know. chicken mousseline with mushrooms and, you know. And I can make duck confit. I mean, that's, you know. That's a no-brainer. Yeah. That's convenience food. Exactly. Just pull it out yeah. in the fridge, you know, on Monday night when I get home. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, Michael, we're just about out of time. Um, Damn, but I was just getting started. <laughs> well, maybe we can go have a pizza if you want. <laughs> uh, but thank you so much for, for taking time to, uh, to come down and hang out in the studio and chat with me today. Always a pleasure to talk about food. Uh, you can follow Michael uh, on social media at Ruhlman, that's R-U-H-L-M-A-N, and you can have a look at his website, uh, Ruhlman.com. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. A uh, big thank you to Matt Patterson, our engineer here at Heritage Radio Network. You can find this as well as about 35 other shows every week at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. Uh, and definitely keep an eye out for From Scratch coming out in October from my guest today, Michael Ruhlman. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family and become a member. Thanks for listening. <laughs>